Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Lucy, how are you? What's in your stocking? <laughs> I don't know what's in my stocking. <laughs> I hope lovely things, not a bit of coal at the end. No. That that would be a shame. No, please, with the novelty gifts, everybody. Well, coal's not novelty. Coal's just, you know, used to be useful in the old days. But now they think they're being funny, though, don't they, if they give you coal? Well, let's just hope you get something good. Yes. And like everyone else, I'm still running around thinking about things I've forgotten. And I told you just before we came on air, I just found myself in a stationery shop, which usually I don't have coal to go into very much, not least because we've got a bunch of TLS stuff here, of course. But I found myself in a stationery shop surrounded by all the lovely things. And then bought a number of the lovely things. Nearly fainted when I saw how much it cost. And oh, came yeah. out again. So that seems to me to be a fairly authentic Christmas experience. Yes, you've had the full experience in a time. Did you get yourself a present? I've been doing that a little bit. Inadvertently. I think, you know, you get <laughs> things and you go, I wonder, oh no, it's, it's not quite right for them. Maybe I'll just hang on to it. <laughs> so maybe I have. We'll find out afterwards whether I have or not. How about you? You gearing up? I'm kind of gearing up, but my slightly grinchy kind of take on Christmas as the host of the Christmas dinner for a large family mm. is that, I mean, not that my family have all been saying, shall we bring a lovely pudding or shall we bring a case of wine? They haven't actually been saying that. Luckily, they don't listen to this. Um, <laughs> I don't think. But my unfestive take is the thing that you really need to get is foil fairy liquid loo roll what for presents no it's what you've always you know the big shop is about oh, matches see. isn't it it's not about lovely kind of truffles and things no you like know that. you've got somebody yeah. will give you some truffles that you don't really like no it's about onions and toilet it's about paper, you've yeah. not got any onions mm, yeah. and having on one occasion many years ago someone had to leave my house to go to somebody else's house to get OXO cubes. I know whereof I speak, Lucy. Okay. Well, you've brought us down to earth with a thump. I know. I've really ruined it. Luckily, <laughs> the paper itself keeps us tremendously in the mood. It's so Christmassy. It's very much not, and I shouldn't really say this, but it's absolutely not the issue of the year to read if you hate Christmas, is it? No, no, it's not. It's not. Though there is, there, it's not all Christmas related. There's stuff in there. There are things to read if you don't like Christmas but it is very Christmassy we've got Dinah Birch talking about Dickens and the Victorian Christmas book and of which more later 
We've got a review of the stories of our favourite Christmas carols. I love that piece. Not yeah. least because I don't think Mel Torme gets very many outings in I the love Times Mel Literary Torme. So do I. I love him. The Velvet Fog, they called him. Exactly. <laughs> I just don't think he appears in the pages enough. very often yeah. or certainly often enough. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely with you. There's a brilliant piece by Miranda Franz, who's come on many times and talked to us about cuteness and kawaii and how it's rewired our brains. We've got Rowan Williams, no less, writing about the Oxford Handbook of Christmas. We've got, well, we've got two Christmassy pieces in the arts pages. One we're going to talk to um, Toby Lishtig in a minute about Roald Dahl adaptations. And then a lovely piece by Michael Caine about the boy and the heron. It's not Christmassy, but it's out soon. It's apparently the last film by Miyazaki from Studio Ghibli which I'm oh, really looking forward to seeing. Wonderful. And also, there's a great big quiz. There is the legendary Impossible to Do TLS Christmas quiz. What kind of thing is being asked of us this year? Well, I can't reveal that <laughs> because people will have to go, go and have a look. The one thing that we do ask is for people not to Google things. Yes, because you're only cheating yourselves, people. If you can do it without Googling. Uh, frankly, I can do such a small percentage of it that it's embarrassing. So I think we should skim over that quite quickly. Though You're absolutely right, Lucy. Let's get on with the podcast in hand, in which we get in touch with our inner children as Toby Lichting joins us to talk Willy Wonka and the Witches and the clanking of the chains approaches as Dinah Birch revisits perhaps the most famous seasonal novel ever, a Christmas Carol. But first, it's the festive season, so that means showtime. And for once, right now, we're not talking about A Christmas Carol, though more on that later. Our Christmas author this time is, perhaps surprisingly, Roald Dahl. So maybe not everything will be sweetness and light then, but let's see. Toby Lishtig, the TLS fiction and politics editor and great friend of the podcast, is an avowed but not uncritical Dahl fan. So I asked him to see The Witches, staged as a musical at the National Theatre, and the film Wonka and Report Back. He's written as a splendid piece and is here to talk to us about it. Thank you for coming, Toby. My pleasure. I'd love to be back. You say in your piece that there are reservations about Dahl the person continue, don't they? But his works are still going incredibly strong. Yeah, I mean, it's almost de rigueur these days. If you're talking about Roald Dahl, you sort of have to address the problems with him as person and as writer and whether that those problems as persons seep into the text but it has not affected the kind of the, the whole Dahl operation you know the afterlife I mean it's been extraordinary you know, he obviously he sold extremely well in his lifetime but he died in 1990 you know for getting up for 33 34 years ago and our thirst for him and for sort of new Dahl as it were so adaptations spin-offs rethinkings is completely undiminished and uh, you know these two new versions or spin-offs are proof of that and then they're not the only ones recently there have been there have been other things as well and i, I mentioned at the beginning of the piece the matilda mu- the musical mm. tim minchin's adaptation huge huge hit, massive operation and actually yeah. I, I happened to catch that quite recently as well it's very very good yeah it's been, it you know, it's, been it's a huge money spinner so yes yeah yeah and those Wes Anderson um, adaptations of of Henry Sugar that are exactly on the telly, so, aren't yeah they? they were they were released on the BBC um, I think in September 
and I think they're still available on iPlayer. Exactly. So I think and, they're and, Netflix actually now. Just to be oh, they Netflix. Oh, oh, I, I see. Okay, so. they're Netflix now. Good, to, good so. to know they've moved across. Yeah, and obviously Wes Anderson has done quite a lot of roles or adapting in the past, including Fantastic Mr. Fox, an adaptation I like very much as well. So yeah, exactly. So all, all direction and kind of in all keys and registers. You know, Wes Anderson is a very different director from someone like Tim Burton. He's also adapted Dull. So yeah, it's a really interesting afterlife. And we needn't really ask in a way. Need we? I mean, you you said there, you know, the question of whether Dahl's personality seeps into the texts. I mean, it really does, doesn't it? And well, I suppose that's one of the reasons that, you know, elements of his personality, not perhaps the most rebarbative ones, but it's the darkness and the misanthropy and the, the viciousness that kids like isn't it well absolutely i mean the racism and the sort of the nastiness and the misogyny to the extent to which that gets into the text is kind of another story he was quite an unpleasant person um accounts you know and, you know he was a multifaceted person i think there were lots of wonderful things about him too but you're absolutely right alex the kind of the darkness of the personality that gets into the text and that children love is about this it's it's this world dull world is a very very peculiar unsettling fascinating engrossing place in the same way that you know children are drawn to macabre fairy tales and have been for millennia Dahl's very very good at tapping into that part of a child's psyche example of that is there's the witches the first one the show you went to see so i was i was struck by how you describe it in the piece you say a brilliantly macabre book and an existentially challenging one including its extraordinary late take on mortality and abandonment and i didn't know hadn't read the witches ever didn't know the story and read, you know, learned it from what you told me. And I find it really, really heartbreaking. It's a very, very tough thing, even, I mean, for anyone to think about. Absolutely. It's extraordinarily moving. I remember reading it as a child and I reread it to my children recently and sort of wondered how that ending stood up. And it completely stands up still. So I'll try and be brief to kind of praise it. So the book starts in classic Roald Dahl style with the death of parents. And this small boy is adopted by his grandmother. They become very, very close. And witches are around. They're real. They're evil. And, you know, 250 pages later or whatever, what happens is, sorry for the plot spoiler, our little boy, who's in the film and, the, and various other adaptations, is called Luke. Actually, in the, in the book itself, he's unnamed. He gets turned into a mouse. And this is very sad and appalling and weird. But he can still talk, and that's good. And then he comes to this realisation that... Because he's a mouse, he's not going to live very long because mice don't live very long. And there's this line in the book that actually boy mice live to about eight or nine years, whereas normal mice live to about four years. And he and his grandmother realise that means that neither are likely to you know, predecease the other. They're basically going to die at the same time. She's already in her 80s. She's probably only got another good seven or eight or nine years left in her. He's got the same. And this is like a kind of happy ending, this realisation. And it's extraordinarily moving. But you read this to children and they're really taking it in. It's a very challenging idea because they're confronted with the idea that they're probably going to outlive their parents and what this means and the sadness of it. But somehow in the context of the book, the sadness, it's not quite taken away, but they basically get away with it because neither the carer nor the child is likely to outlast the other, at least in the scheme after the book. And it's, it's, it's very, very beautifully done. And it really is it's extremely moving, I think. So it's a kind of we're all going to die, but at least we'll go together sort of. Vibe. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Which well, is, of course, not I can't true. Imagine how you know quite. <laughs> imagine how you actually do explain that to small children as you're reading it to them and, and trying to get them to settle down for the evening. 
from my own experience, well, my kids anyway, they just sort of took it in. And they didn't even, because it's very, very beautifully done in the book, they didn't really need to ask questions, or maybe the questions came out later. I know my, the littler of my two children is quite scared of the witches, understandably, having, having read that book to him. But it is, you know, it is pretty, it's pretty challenging. Toby, fast forward to the therapist's couch in 20 years' time. <laughs> yes. It would be very tough end to any book, but it seems especially difficult that it's about a child having to come to that realisation. Exactly. And the fact that it's cast as like a happy ending. This is, yeah. the happy, this is the happiness. They're both going to die together quite soon. Yeah, yeah. So this stage version is adapted by Lucy Kirkwood, who is a serious dramatic talent. She's probably best known for Chimerica, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So does it keep quite a lot of the darkness is it I don't mean faithful you know to the letter of it but is it faithful to the spirit so it's semi-faithful to the spirit and it does keep the ending which I was pleased about because the film adaptation forked a bit I think is from the early 90s and Luke gets turned back into a human which I thought was a bit unnecessary in terms of kind of timbre it's pretty camp it's pretty fun it's a you know I should say it's a musical and they're obviously trying to uh, well, emulate the success of Matilda, I would say that that must at least partly have been in Lucy Kirkwood's mind and the rest of the people who devised this. It's, it's lots of fun. The witches themselves are definitely scarier on the page than on the stage, but I don't think that's a problem. And I guess, you know, they're, they've probably got one eye on the West End spin-off and it can't, you know, it's got to be pretty family friendly. So I think they've actually got the balance quite right. They've got it. I can see why They've toned down some of the sinisterness. It's lots of fun. And yeah, the musical numbers are pretty good. So yeah, I'd, I'd say they've, 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 done, they've, they've sort of done the right things with it. And you went along, didn't you, with, uh, with a young companion. I said, you take someone young with you so that we can trust their judgment because they're the exactly. real audience. So I should actually thank you, Lisa, because this was a wonderful commission. I got, not only did I get to go to the, you know, the theatre and to the cinema, but I got to bring my young companion, my daughter, my eight-year-old daughter with me so she went to both press nights which was incredibly fun for her I think she absolutely loved it and we felt very very lucky so that was great and she absolutely loved it in fact I did whisper to her about halfway through because we've been to see Matilda a few days previous I said I do really like this but I think the songs in Matilda are a bit better actually Tim Minchin's songs are totally brilliant and the lyrics are utterly sharp and fantastic and, and my companion looked at me and said daddy you're not going to give it a bad review are you Oh, <laughs> don't try to influence the reviewer. So <laughs> I had to reassure her that I wasn't going to give it a bad review because I did like it in my own right. But um, <laughs> Toby, did you have you started the training young? Did you say, well, I tell you what, I think you should write a review too, <laughs> and we'll just get her in into the groove, make her realise this is the future. I did interview her afterwards, so we went for a drink afterwards. I should you know, stress she had an orange juice. And we went for a drink at the, the press party afterwards and I sort of did a quick interview with her and just got her, her take. And she, she, she loved it. She just she thought it was really, really brilliant, really, really engrossing. And actually, I must thank her for reminding me that, that in that earlier film adaptation, Luke gets turned back into a boy because I don't think I'd have remembered that. And so when it came to the film, Wonka, it seems to be everywhere. It's on every bus and every billboard. Yeah, they're going see, for it, aren't they? With they the promotion. Really Certainly in London anyway. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It seems that seems like a very different beast. You say there isn't a trace of you call him. So this is quite a, quite an odd way of calling Willy Wonka. But I take your point. You call him the erratic and vindictive recluse. I mean, yeah, he is. <laughs> he's not only, but um, no, I take your point. He is. He's pretty erratic. He's yeah. definitely he is erratic. Vindictive. Certainly, he's yeah. definitely vindictive because he loves punishing the, the bad children. And he's yeah, that's like, true. He's a recluse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
as an yeah, all of these things. I'm afraid it's pretty <laughs> indubitable. When I was reading, when I'm considering, I haven't even managed to watch Tim Burton because I'm so wedded to Gene oh, Wilder. Yeah. This is the once there was Gene Wilder, there is no other Wonka for me. But am I wrong? Joni Depp and Gene Wilder are very, very, very different Wonkers. But I. Uh, it's not a popular take, but I think not not everyone loves the, the Tim Burton one. I think they're both brilliant. I just think they're both completely different and both brilliant in their own ways. They're really wonderful interpretations for me. I think it's probably an age thing, isn't it? It's probably when you saw it yes. first. And I am, yes. as we know, of great antiquity and greater antiquity than you, Toby. <laughs> well, I'm a reasonable antiquity. In fact, I, I think I actually reviewed that Tim Burton remake for the TLS quite a long time ago. So... You know, that's a certain antiquity there. But um, this is different. So we should say this is Wonka. It is not an adaptation. It is a shameless spin-off. Maybe shameless is unfair, but it's a, it's a spin-off. And it's meant to be an origin story. I mean, it's tagged with this kind of line, how Willie became Wonka. And I should probably, you know, make sure my young companion doesn't listen to this podcast because I didn't love it that much. It's very, very engaging. She totally loved it. She thought it was brilliant. And actually, my younger son went to see it at the weekend and he absolutely loved it too but it is dull absolutely stripped bare of any conflict and sinisterness it's a kind of silly almost kind of ealing comedy-ish kind of prime plot Wonka himself he's a young Wonka he's in his early 20s he's Timothée Chalamet um, Chalamet does a good job you know he's he's this kind of puckish and fun-loving and well, chocolate-loving magician and it's supposed to kind of give you this understanding of how he became this incredible chocolatier but you don't get any sense of the later Wonka with his, his vindictiveness his reclusiveness <laughs> or any sense of why he turned into this this character and the a point of comparison I make in the Tim Burton film there's this kind of little flashback which is which this is Tim Burton this is not dull we don't get this in the book in which we learn that Wonka has become this character because of his father who was a dentist who prevented him from having any sweets and chocolate. I have seen that bit from the Tim Burton film and I thought that wasn't dull-like because it was far too neat. It is quite neat and it's, it is not, it's not dull-like and it's not dull writing because that was Tim Burton's take. And I, I actually quite liked it. I thought it was quite fun. Fair enough. I think it is quite neat and, you know, it's probably not entirely faithful to the original. But this is even neater in Wonka because there's no trace of any kind of difficult parents. There's just this very lovely relationship that he has with his mother when young. And his mother's also this wonderful amateur cook. She's Irish. Um, they're in America. And she makes wonderful chocolate. And he never finds out the secret of her wonderful chocolate recipe until the end of this film. And I am going to give the spoiler away because it's so... We'll just say block curious listeners for the next two minutes <laughs> if you don't the want to know. Wonka's mother's chocolate was it's who you share it with. And I just thought, oh, come there on. You go. Oh, God, it's not, it's cocoa solids. <laughs> it's cocoa solids. For <laughs> heaven's sake. Listen, I, I'm just not to, you know, ask the big question. It's fat and capital sugar. B, capital Q. But we are so interested in origin stories in contemporary culture. I mean, this is this just all, you know, Freud, loosely speaking? I speak as someone who loves Endeavour, a Morse fan who loves Endeavour. I don't mind a prequel, but what do we think can be solved if we create problematic childhoods for much-loved but often inexplicable 
fictional characters. I, I think what can be solved is the, is the problem of there not being more material from authors who are now dead. So <laughs> what could be solved is the problem of not having enough cash. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> having quite as much cash as one had before. I and I think, see. but, you know, if you are going to have a, an origin story, make it interesting. And there's absolutely nothing interesting to the actual, to the actual backstory. There's plenty of interesting stuff in this film. It's fun. The music's good. Neil Hannon of the Divine Comedy has written a lot of songs and they're, they're great. You can actually get them on Spotify now. There are some lovely performances. You've got Olivia Coleman as this sort of corrupted uh, B&B owner who ends up kind of putting uh, her guests into indentured slavery. There are some really, really lovely vignettes. But it's just in, t- in terms of if we're looking at it as text, it's pretty, it's pretty saccharine. And, and I imagine Dahl would have, I can't even imagine what Dahl's reaction would have been because, you know, he... <laughs> He himself famously fell out with people who tried to adapt uh, his material when he was alive. So, you know, this one would certainly not have passed muster. And what about Hugh Grant, we must ask you? <laughs> so, yes, I should say... I mean, actually, this is him, you know, it's obviously his thing now, isn't it? Paddington and now this. Yes. No, he's a wonderful, you know, he's a wonderful, he's a wonderful character, actually, isn't he? This is something I like about the film, actually, about Wonka. So there is something very troubling about the Oompa Loompas in terms of their history. So when they, when the book first comes out, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in the early 60s, they are portrayed, and in, in terms of the drawings as well, as black pigmies. And they're these sort of slaves, essentially, who are very grateful to Wonka for, you know, taking, taking them over to his factory and he pays them in cocoa beans. And this is the greatest honour. I think we can all see why that's problematic. Then they sort of get de-racialized and they become these sort of sprite-like beings, in the book at least. And in the first film adaptation with Gene Wilder, their faces are orange. But now we've completely decolonized them because they've got Hugh Grant as the Oompa kind of the epitome of British poshness. And the story with him is that Wonka's stolen some cocoa beans from, you know, the Oompa Loompa land, and he's come back to exact his revenge. Is it a bit like the Elgin Marbles? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this lovely line, he says, steal from Oompa Loompa and we take back a thousandfold. So he's there to torment Wonka. And I thought that was quite a good contemporary twist on the sort of the, the vexed problem of the Oompa Loompa. I thought it did quite well with so you've that. you've got this incredible sort of saccharine sweetness of the family backstory yeah but then a bit of steel introduced yeah. in the fact that the Oompa Loompas and Wonka are enemies they're exactly adults. but you know frankly if we're with all due respect to Hugh Grant if we're relying on Hugh Grant for our kind of splinter of ice or bit of steel <laughs> in our in our film then you you've got a sense of the sort of film it is yes this one is a family film as well isn't it it's festive Family fun. So did your daughter like, she did like this she one She absolutely too. loved it and she'll be very sad. In fact, I think I can hear in the room next door, so I better keep my voice down. I think she'll be very sad if I gave it a bad review. And actually, my I have a five-year-old, uh, a five-year-old son and he saw it and absolutely loved it as well. So don't let my quibbles with it put you off if you're thinking of taking your children over this festive period or at any other time, because I think it is a very good family-friendly film. And there's, there's lots for the adults to enjoy as well, including some of the songs. I may have to borrow your children if they want to go again, Toby. I've been put in mind, probably by the mention of Hugh Grant, of going to see uh, Paddington in the cinema when it first came out. And it was a Christmas time. And I think we went, I went with a male companion, not young. And I think we went in the daytime. So we were the only unaccompanied adults there. And we sat behind a little girl. And you'll remember at the very beginning of the very first Paddington when it is black and white and he's mm. there 
in Peru with Aunt Lucy, etc. Uncle Pastuza. And Uncle yeah. Pastuza. And then it, it dissolves to now. And it, but it goes, the screen goes black for a few seconds. And the little girl in front of us just said, Is it the end? <laughs> And we and her poor mother had to explain there was about another hour and a half of this stuff to go, and because we were worried, but you know, we came out and you go, God, what you know, we just look like we just look strange. We look like we've forgotten our our kid at the pick and mix. The first time I went to see Paddington, I did go with kiddies, but actually I was sitting next to a, a row of adults, and and every everyone was really laughing. I loved the first Paddington. In fact, I thought that. Because Wonka is made by the same people, isn't it? This is this is germane to our discussion. It's it's the same director, I think, possibly yes. the same scriptwriters. And the lady next to me was laughing. I've never heard anyone make such a noise. Was in the it cinema. me? <laughs> no, but she was actually. I've never heard any human do it since. She was hooting, really hooting. And so I just we all just let rip because I, you know, we were trying to be well behaved. But then she was hooting so loudly, like as loud a noise as you could make. I just thought, well, this is wonderful. So everyone at the cinema was just, you know, was going for it. I thought that Paddington, your point about Jeopardy, Toby, and Paddington's a very, very sweet film, but the Jeopardy, I suppose, is that he doesn't fit in and he is basically a refugee. And there's a yes. genuine yes, yes. question about whether whether he can remain or whether he will remain or whether he's happy. And that there's a point, exactly, there's a poignancy throughout, isn't there? This was just a bit more of a kind of hectic caper. And it quite, I, I didn't really go into this in the piece, but it's quite, it's very, very choppy. Everything happens very, very quickly and suddenly someone's captured and then, there is, then they escape and then two minutes later, someone else gets captured. And it's, it, it doesn't, it sort of struggles to settle. I wonder whether it was a, a much, 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 much longer film and it's sort of been, it suffered a little in edit. But perhaps I'm not about that. For, one, for the director's cut, which would be four and a half yeah. hours yeah, long. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and, and you don't have to take your children to see that. That might be just too much. Okay, well, but we are saying that it's okay if I watch it, even without, even without a child in tow. The kids will love it. It's got some great performances. It's okay for adults. I think you'll have a fine enough time in the in the cinema. But if you really think about it afterwards, you'll probably think, oh, that was a bit, that was a bit saccharine, wasn't it? But it's Christmas, so just eat a box of Quality Street and then you won't be able to think about anything. Yeah, exactly. Well, I should say there's a great little performance by Rowan Atkinson as well. He's this um, corrupt, chocoholic priest um, who's sort of helping to kind of grease the wheels of this uh, venal town in which there's a kind of chocolate cartel. Toby, thank you so much for going to all the Christmas shows for us. It's been an absolute <laughs> delight. I, yes, exactly. It was very good of me, wasn't it? <laughs> it was, it was. It was very good of you and it was very good to come and talk to us about it today. Selfless as ever. Toby, <laughs> we should say, as we near the end of the year, thank you so much for all your contributions to podcasts throughout the year. And we will have you back very soon, won't we? I hope so. I love doing thank it. Good. So thanks for inviting good. me. Goodbye. Bye. Still to come on the show, Dinah Birch on Charles Dickens and his part in The Invention of Christmas. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. It is December the 19th, 1843, and there is a new book for sale. By Christmas Eve, it has sold 6,000 copies. And within a few weeks, there'll be eight stage adaptations for fans to go and see. This is merely the shape of things to come for a novel that has never been out of print, has spawned at least 100 films, including one featuring the Muppets, and whose plot, characters and atmosphere have thoroughly entered the collective imagination. It is, of course, A Christmas Carol, the work of the then 31-year-old Charles Dickens, and the subject of a wide-ranging essay in this week's TLS, by Dinah Birch, who we're delighted can join us now. Hello, Dinah. Hello. This is such an interesting piece. I guess partly because we feel we know everything about A Christmas Carol, but there's so much detail that you've unearthed and written about, about its genesis, its reception, and how it fitted into Victorian culture. I mean, just for a start, it wasn't actually financially successful in the beginning, was it, despite selling so many copies? It did eventually earn a great deal of money for Dickens, as did its successors, Dickens' later Christmas books. But no, not first time round on first publication. And that's because Dickens really cared about making the book beautiful, a lovely Christmas present. So he fussed about the way in which it was to be produced, the gilt edge pages, the colour of the end papers, the quality of the illustrations. So in the end, the production costs were high and the profit margins very small. So though he was selling thousands of copies, if you have very um, low margins of profit, then of course you're not going to make much money. And an additional complication was that because it was so successful with readers and critics, it was almost immediately plagiarised. So Dickens then incurred legal costs to try to stop the plagiarisation with limited success, but they amounted to quite a lot of money too. In the end, he did make money, but not in the short term, no. I'm feeling terribly sorry for him now because he'd, he'd, so he kind of blew the budget, basically, or just didn't decided not to have one. But he actually, he really did want or he needed money, didn't he? He already had four children. And he'd got these five novels that he'd written, including Oliver Twist and The Old Curiosity Shop and Nicholas Nickleby, very successful. But he'd just published Martin Chuzzlewit and it wasn't doing that well. That's right. And he was worried about money. He was on a decent income, but he was a spender. 
and he spent more than he earned. You can see his preoccupation with debt in many of his novels. Think of Mr. Micawber in David Copperfield, always spending that little bit too much. And this was true of Dickens. He loved to entertain friends and visitors, to live well. As you've noted, there were children. There was another baby on the way. Dickens had very mixed feelings about that, though he was, of course, at least partly to blame for this situation. He had money problems. And not only was he worried about money, he was worried about his changing attitude to money, the way in which he was beginning to resent those who depended on him, his wife, his children, other family members who were taking advantage of his celebrity um, to either ask for money from Dickens or make money from Dickens's name. It was corrosive. Dickens was worried that he was being, as it were, corroded by money. And that's one of the motives for writing A Christmas Carol. One of the reasons why, and I do think this is part of the book's urgency, a reason for its success, there is a little bit of Dickens in Scrooge, that preoccupation with money, that impatience with those who needed money. Mm, it's As you say, there's these extraordinary set of circumstances that he feels he needs money, he's worried about money, he writes it very quickly, he's young, he's got a big family, he's worried about his reputation. It's extraordinary that it's so good, isn't it? Because you'd have thought all of those pressures you know, sort of as though he was sort of churning it out to get good sales. You wouldn't have thought that would necessarily result in a good book. And yet, you know, it's still here. We're still talking about it and it's still resonant and still very good to read. Indeed, it is a very good book. And I think that the pressure that he was under, personal pressure, professional pressure, um, and also, we haven't touched on this yet, but I think it's also part of the picture, um, his anxiety about what he felt to be the degradation of the culture around him, the poverty that he saw, all of those things come together to create a, a sort of, I don't know how to describe it exactly, it was a sort of creative storm in him. And I think you see it in the texture and quality of the writing, which is extraordinary. We often talk about Dickens's Christmas Carol as though it were just a story. And of course, it is a story. The mean-spirited Scrooge, the visits of Jacob Marley, the three ghosts, Scrooge's redemption. That's what we remember. But the really dazzling quality of the prose in which this story is conveyed is very much part of what's given it its longevity. There's a, a sort of fever about the book. You see it in the abundance of the language, the mm. way in which it constantly provides you with excess, excess detail, lists, lists of impressions, lists sometimes of retail goods. Nothing is pared down in A Christmas Carol as if all of that pressure was tumbling out of Dickens onto the page. Uh, so there's a generosity 
about the quality of the prose yeah. that fits into what Dickens is writing about. And yet it's not. I mean, as, as someone we were talking about this a few weeks ago, I reread Bleak House recently, and yet it's not that long. It's it's compressed. It's all kind of, it's like a diamond. It's all been shoved in. That's right. It isn't very long. And it is very sharply focused. It's a story in its outlines that's really very simple. But returning to the question of why, why is it that it has such a grip on us? I think that that compression is in some ways a little bit deceptive because within the parameters of quite short text, there is a great deal of narrative complexity. I mentioned that almost feverish quality that the writing has. It's reflected, it seems to me, in the way in which the register of the prose is really oddly unstable. It's a kind of writing risk to take, but it's one that comes off in A Christmas Carol, that the prose flickers. Some of the ghosts do the same thing. That quality of uncertainty the tone flickers between comedy, pathos, anger, contemplation, conversation. You never quite know where the next sentence is going to land you. You move with extraordinary rapidity from point to point to point in the narrative. All, as you rightly say, all condensed. But it contains, just technically speaking, a really dazzling richness and variety of narrative perspective. And one consequence of that is that the reader is never bored because of its unexpectedness, as it does take you from place to place. It is a restless text, just as Scrooge travels in this book, travels into his own past, travels with the ghost of... of Christmas present to, to different locations for Christmas, travels into the future. It's a book that denies the possibility of any fixed point, although it also has that kind of narrative shape, the narrative arc that takes us to Scrooge's conversion and redemption. I was really interested in what you said in your piece and you're talking about here, I think, too, this theory of Scrooge and his similarity to Dickens and the fact that we as readers do sympathise with him and in particular with his unhappy childhood. And, and, and your argument is that that was very important to Dickens. He saw that element of his own childhood mirrored in his characters, didn't he? I think that's right. And Dickens was at this point in his life um, beginning the process of coming to terms with the trauma as he came to understand it of his own childhood, the neglect that he felt that he had suffered, the way in which his welfare, his prospects had not been taken seriously. All of that left a deep mark, a deep wound, and we see that process enacted in Scrooge. I mean, the, the pivotal point in Scrooge's transformation is his recognition of um, the sorrow of his past and his weeping for himself. Self-pity, not 
usually an emotion that we see as productive, but it's a very necessary emotion for Scrooge. And in fact, Dickens dwells on this elsewhere in his fiction, that, that we do need to have compassion for ourselves before we can move to have compassion for others. Yes, there's a lot of Dickens in Scrooge, but I've, I've also said in my piece, and perhaps this is a more controversial point, not everyone will want to accept it, that for most people, I won't say this is true of everyone, but for most people, there is a little bit of Scrooge in us all, that impulse. To sit on your gold, <laughs> it's mine. Absolutely, <laughs> and, and to be impatient with the needs of others, you know, and to feel for a whole variety of reasons, sometimes, you know, anxiety, insecurity about our own position, that really, really, it would be very much better if people weren't making these bothersome claims on our generosity or our charity, our fellow feeling, and that it would be sensible just to hang on to what we have to make ourselves secure. And at this time of year, particularly, I should say we're recording this on the 19th of December. It's exactly 180 years since the book first came out. At this time of year, I don't think it is at all unusual for people to think, oh, good grief, Christmas, here we go again, the enforced bonhomie, and I can't mm. afford it, and how am I going to manage all this? And I'm sick mm. of the whole business. Bar humbug. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's partly, isn't it, that you've got, Scrooge is, is sort of one person. As he, you know, it's, it's a kind of no man is an island, he comes to realise. But it's the idea that these demands on him might just be sort of ceaseless. And it's not only that they're sort of personified by his clerk or, or somebody he might have to give money to, but this whole world of impoverishment that's beyond him. And that's how it sort of relates to Dickens' views on the improvement of society and the dealing with the poor and with inequality, isn't it? That's right. And Dickens, as, as a, a young man, at this point in his life, and you see it in the early novels, is pinning a good deal of faith on the exercise of personal charity, a personal benevolence to mitigate against the distress of poverty and the disparity between wealth and dispossession that he saw all around him. That wasn't a faith that he was able to sustain. In his later years, he came to feel that charity wasn't going to be enough and that there needed to be more structural change. In the darker, later novels, you do see that view emerging. But at this point in his career, in his thinking, Dickens is still um, firmly of the view that if we could all take our personal responsibility to those um, with need more seriously to give what it is possible to give within the limits of possibility. And he does see that. Scrooge can be generous because he has the means with which he can be generous. He's a very rich man. At this point, Dickens is very committed to personal charity as a means of alleviating need. He never entirely loses that. 
we all have personal um, responsibility. But there is, if you think of Dickens' career and thought as a whole, um, a trajectory and a rather disillusioned move away from that concept of um, the exercise of charity as being an adequate response to the phenomena of, of poverty. It, it is very much a book of its time in some ways. The hungry 40s were a time where there was a great deal of distress for many different reasons um, in London and indeed elsewhere in Britain and widening differences between the lives of the rich and the lives of the poor. Dickens wasn't unique in attempting to respond um, to those challenges. Um, but certainly A Christmas Carol is one of the most pointed responses. But one of the interesting things, we, we're talking about the persistence of the book and its longevity within the national imagination, that throughout those many decades through which we have returned as a nation um, to A Christmas Carol, we have always said this is a particularly timely moment for A Christmas Carol. We might mm. feel it now, and we have good reason to feel it. But there has always been good reason to feel that the book is both of its time and yet peculiarly for our time. It's got that freshness about it. And one thing that I pick up in the piece, and I think feeds in to this sense of its, as it were, perpetual relevance, is that the book does tune in to broader narrative rhythms and the way in which we commemorate and remember Christmas. It is a very much a Christmas book. It mm. thinks about Christmas and it thinks about Christmas within the pattern of the seasons, the cycle of national celebrations, because Christmas is, and we do think about this at this time of year, it is a very particular moment in the year, isn't it? Mm. It coincides with the darkness and, and, and with the cold. And Dickens picks that up. It, it's the moment, if you like, of death within the year's cycle, the low point. And also, I suppose, all those, and you make this point too, that it's it's the way it's commemorated is also a matter of sort of slightly fraught discussion. So the sort of creation of it as a Victorian celebration was not how it had been commemorated in decades previously or centuries previously. Some of that was to do with Dickens uh, and the way that he functioned in the culture. But it was in Victorian times terribly commercialised, terribly retail heavy, wasn't it? It was beginning to be at this time. There was that movement, which indeed persists, to see Christmas as a, as a retail opportunity, which of course it, it was and is. Um, 1843 was the year in which the very first Christmas cards were sent, another persistent tradition. So I think uh, Christmas Carol manages to balance I won't say timeless, nothing is timeless, but certainly older concepts of the midwinter festival, the turning of the year, the equinox, balances that with contemporary phenomena and contemporary concerns. That's one of the reasons for its success. The, the Christmas, which is our major national festival, 
on the one hand, it's different every year. It doesn't, it's not fixed, it changes. But on the other hand, there is something persistent about its basic kind of pattern, its model, which indeed predates the Christian festival all over the Northern Hemisphere. That moment of the turning of the year and the return of the light and the, the concept of the rebirth and new hope, it's celebrated um, globally. It's, it isn't just an English or a, a British moment. So it taps into both those topical concerns um, and those broader, older preoccupations. That's part of its brilliance. It works, mm. it's very short, it's a simple story, but it works on so many different levels. Mm. Mm. Alex, you were saying that he helped to, Dickens sort of helped to create Christmas, or for us he feels like one of the things that helped to create it. But what was also really fascinating in the piece is the idea of these Christmas books. So after yep. A Christmas Carol was so amazingly successful, everyone, everyone including Dickens, went, oh, great, okay, <laughs> I'm going to write a Christmas story every year. And even if they didn't want to, and some of them were sound, uh, there's a particular one by uh, Elizabeth Gaskell, not just The Moorland Cottage, but her short story, Crooked Branch, yeah. is it? They just sound yeah. absolutely, just totally miserable. <laughs> well, they're not very cheery, it has to be said. <laughs> I, I love you... the idea that they're, Trollope and Gaskell both were there. They really didn't want to do it at all, but they yeah, thought, no, oh, <laughs> do I have yeah. to? Yeah. <laughs> And they were pushing back against it, I think, in, in the kind of stories that they wrote. They don't write about Christmas in the way that Dickens, of course, does. Actually, Dickens only really did that once. His, his subsequent Christmas books don't think about Christmas in the way that A Christmas Carol does. But yes, there's a, almost a kind of bleakness in Gaskell's um, Christmas stories, but I think that that was partly due to what was really quite firmly embedded in her nature, a suspicion of Dickens's celebration of excess, of abundance, of the potency of charity, those those things that we see in A Christmas Carol, they, they're really not so important to Elizabeth Gaskell Partly, perhaps, because she is embedded in a very different culture. Obviously, she's not a Londoner. She comes from a more northern and non-conformist culture. And non-conformists generally, at that time, were not so inclined to see Christmas as this kind of national festival of giving and feasting and abundance. There were exceptions to that, but broadly speaking... The, the non-conformist culture doesn't do that in quite the same way. I mean, we remember, of course, that um, Oliver Cromwell famously, mm. Puritan, tried to ban Christmas altogether. Yeah, never with big... any <laughs> complete didn't work, success. Did it? No, not one <laughs> no. for the paper hats. There's a brilliant no. phrase you've got in your piece where you say that the the best comfort that Gaskell has to offer. In, I think this is one, this is the story, The Crooked Branch. The best comfort she has to offer is that all suffering and injustice is alleviated by death. <laughs> You're not going to put that on a cracker, are you? It really is a very different, <laughs> different no. approach. And The Crooked Branch, Elizabeth Gaskell, as Dickens would sometimes complain 
um, was um, sometimes inclined to take a dark view of matters, but of all the stories that, that she published, I think a, a crooked branch of the ghost in the garden room, as it was in that Christmas number, is the bleakest. Yeah. And she's, she's a brilliant writer in quite a different way. And I do recommend in the piece um, the old nurse's story, which is um, another denial, if you like, of Dickens's view of Christmas. You know, what is done in youth can never be undone, can never be undone. That's a very un-Dickensian sentiment. But the old nurse's story is a cracking ghost story. It's a really, really good ghost story. It couldn't be more different from A Christmas Carol, but it certainly has its own claims. They're both worth reading. They're both still powerful stories, but nothing really quite touches A Christmas Story. It just works in so many different ways. I honestly think you, you're you going to send me back to it this Christmas because the, your, your piece was, there was just so much in it that was so interesting. But Dinah, would you mind if I put you on the spot and said, here, let's assume I've read my Dickens and my, my Gaskell over this Christmas. But if I were to do a reread over Christmas, doesn't have to be Christmas Eve, but from that era, what would you send me away with? Well, I would send you away with A Christmas Carol. And even those who feel that they know the book very well, um, I think are very likely to find if they go back to it, and it isn't long, they will have forgotten some of its force. Yes, I, I'm sure you're right. But also, you have, we should say, and perhaps we'll close with this, you do mention The Muppets. And I am a person who has not seen a Muppet Christmas Carol. But you're it's saying, a, yes, Alex, go and see it. Go and I am saying seek that. it out. It's a huge gap in your life, Alex, I'm afraid. Uh, you should watch the Muppets. It really is. It's surprisingly <laughs> faithful as well. Yeah, it is. It It is faithful to Dickens' spirit. But what it doesn't have, and what none of the filmed adaptations, television, all of the many versions, it doesn't have that really astonishingly compelling um, prose. It's, do you remember, A Christmas Carol in prose. The quality of Dickens's writing is what I think is worth returning to. And that doesn't exclude watching The Muppets or Alistair Sim in that other great early version of Christmas Carol, one of my favourites. Mm. I mean, there are plenty to choose from. There are brilliant versions and stage adaptations going on every year, all, all worth experiencing. Um, but it's worth, I think, going back to the original fountain um, and looking again at the book itself. It does reward you. Well, I shall do that. Lucy, you will also do it. Mm. And perhaps we'll both do Muppets. <laughs> I think that's a good balance we'll do one of each Dinah thank you so much That was it's a brilliant piece and it was just wonderful to talk to you thank you very much and for all your contributions to the, to the podcast over the months and years we really appreciate it thank you have time for this week our thanks go to toby lishtig and dinah birch 
And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS Podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week with our special programme of seasonal highlights. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye, a happy Christmas and a happy holidays. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 